There's a place some of us go each fall. A place where the ring of a bell filters through the covers and hurried shouts of bird up bring everybody to attention. A place where the playful puppies around our house are transformed here to driven bird finders. And where there is confidence in the slow pace of the silver-muzzled old veterans. Where our friends tell the same old stories each year, and none of us seem to mind. Where great shots are forgotten, and epic misses never fade. Where an old gun will have a story to tell, if only it could speak to us. Where all the good seats are claimed by the dogs. If you have a camp, you know these things all too well. If you don't, well, you're always welcome here. So pull up a chair, tell us about your favorite gunner dog, and we'll admire the birds together and talk the night away by the fire. Welcome to Bird Camp. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Bird Camp Podcast. I am your host, Joe Schwenke, and I'm going to get through our little bit of business before uh, we get into our guest. And we are here at the study today. I'm not on the phone or video chat, but uh, just a reminder quickly then, the Andy Cullen Seminar is coming up over at Blackbriar Spaniels. And if we can still squeak you in and you still want to be a part of a three-day uh, Spaniel and other fleshing dog a seminar this would be a great help to to you in the woods or uh, just getting to know how to use your dog better and how to get uh, a better experience and enjoyment out of your dog um, we're still addressing some audio issues some of it will be with some new microphones but uh, as well um, the other reason for being live here is that there's no phone static and uh, and he's also local so Along with that one, thank you again to some of the new Patreons that are helping support new microphones uh, coming. I will be developing some sort of Patreon contest or giveaway. Uh, we started out with the MyGunGrip.com gun grip for on the side of your truck bumper. Uh, try not to let it blow off or leave it behind like a bow whoop. But uh, with that in mind, we'll, we'll do some other things there too. It's coming up in the future. Uh, thank you for some feedback from Matt, who said that uh, he was listening to us while out scouting and uh, scouting for gobblers and spring drummers. He had some beautiful grouse pictures in there, and he found a few cold water streams as well. But uh, speaking of feedback, ways to get a hold of the podcast, find us on Gmail at mi.birdcamp at gmail.com. Uh, if you're on Patreon or if you want to support on through Patreon, it's Patreon slash BirdCamp. You can also find me at BirdCampPod on Instagram and BirdCamp on Facebook. Or if you look up Joe Swanky, uh, the podcast stuff is almost all public anyway. Easy to find me there. And with that, on to our guest. Welcome, Glenn Blackwood. Joe, thanks for being here and having me. This is a wonderful opportunity. It is. And uh, we have some business to get out of the way first. Well... Not really get out of the way. Well, we're going to talk RGS, of course, and then uh, and then the exciting stuff too, because I've got a whole page of show notes. But uh, before we get into that, I always wrinkle the paper. I have a dilemma letter here, and this one comes in from a guy named Phil. <clears throat> so I will read it here, and we'll get Glenn's take first. 
I recently was at a spring get-together of friends and acquaintances on a Saturday afternoon, 50 or 60 people with great food in heaps and cold drinks and socializing. Among the crowd, there were a few of our camp members, and we slipped off to a quiet corner to digest a day's worth of calories and talk a little bit about next season. We must have spent longer than a few minutes because we were discovered by Ted. Names, of course, are changed to protect guilty and innocent alike. Ted joined the conversation, and we didn't think much of it. He didn't hunt, as far as we knew, so what harm would it be to keep the chat going? When the trip details were the hot topic, Ted speaks up and says, Man, I haven't bird hunted in years. Maybe I can join you for a while this fall. Truth be told, Ted is good company most of the time. Social get-togethers, barbecues, bar mitzvahs, and bus trips to see the tigers, and he's okay. But a place in the Holy of Holies at camp is different. We're in agreement that Ted doesn't pass muster to that standard. So with that statement hitting us like a six-shot, we were able to stammer out something to the effect of, we'll see if we have room and what the other guys might think. Slinking out of of our quiet corner and heading for the leftover ribs and cooler. P.S. Hopefully this all just gets forgotten by fall. Sorry to hear about that, Phil. Glenn, that's a tough one. Uh, well, yeah, I think it's a really a, a tough one. Um, and people that know me well know that uh, I'm not a big travel with uh, multiple people um, type of guy. Um, I think, uh, in the perfect world, when you travel for sport, um, you go with one person, worst case scenario, um, you might go with four. I know that doesn't sound, uh, like I'm very gregarious or, or popular. Um, but the fifth person complicates things exponentially as does the sixth and seventh and eighth and there's people that uh i mean i know a lot of folks that that can do that um but it's i guess it's not my personal cup of tea um and so uh if it's that large of a group i'd probably personally and respectfully decline anyway. I, I like uh, rather small groups, like I said, uh, one or two people or, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, I know we joke in our camp every now and then, or I've, I've mentioned it too, it's easier to find a good wife than a good hunting partner. There's more than a handful of people out there that probably just don't muster to that level where I want to go hunting with them or... You know, and I think everybody that that takes their hunting seriously is in that position. Well, I I think if you you take the sport seriously, whether it's in the fall or this time of the year, chasing turkeys, which I I, I don't do because I'm typically very busy in the spring and just be one other thing to muddle up my life, Um, or fishing, uh, Mm -hmm. for instance, uh, it, it... it's very personal. Um, it's very sacred. And I know that that sounds really kind of silly. Um, but 
you know, those days of field and, you know, I want to, when I'm out there, I'm being very selfish and, and, you know, truth be told, uh, I'm probably, I am a selfish individual when it comes to these things. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to yeah. capitulate to, mm-hmm. to what I want to do. I guess, uh, I mean, that sounds very greedy, uh, personally greedy on my part. Um, but it's, I've learned that over the years. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and sacred is not a bad word for it. Some people call it their church anyway, right? The number of days we have in the field, right? There's, there's four Saturdays in October. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay, who do I really want to spend time with when it's this short of a commodity? Well, there's a big list of people that I can always get together with later. But October is different. Same, you know, spring trout. That's going to be different for people. So Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I always think back to this, Joe, and I, I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly or not, but I was a little kid and my grandfather and I were supposed to go back uh, to Pennsylvania to go trout fishing. And uh, my grandfather had a inner ear infection. It wasn't supposed to drive, but he, we were going to go. And my grandmother was very upset. And my grandmother was this little apple dumpling northern or Norman Rockwell kind of lady with, you know, red cheeks. And as we're leaving, she's sitting there in her house dress and says, James Blackwood, you'd go on this trip come hell or high water, wouldn't you? And he said, hell yes, high water. It just depends how dirty it is. And she looked at him, and then he said, you realize I've never felt closer to the Lord than when I'm on a trout stream, and he'll take care of me on this trip. And we left. And I'm a little kid, and we're pulling out here, and and he drove an Oldsmobile 88. Uh, Never a 98, because that was too pretentious, but an 88. Um, And we're driving down the road, and he looks at me, and I'm like, 12, 13 years at the time. He goes, you got an extra week. I said, what do you mean I got an extra week? I just got out of school. I got all summer. He says, it might take her two weeks to calm down. And honest to goodness, we fished for two weeks at camp before we came back. Um, so, uh, you know, but it's one of those lessons, like you say, it is, it is sacred mm-hmm. and it is personal. Yep. Now, at the same time, though, someone here is interested in hunting. You don't want to just throw them out either, but well, how to? But how do you compromise that? Uh, again, I think it comes back to numbers and the size of the camp and yeah. um, longevity and, and those things. There, I know, uh, you know, myself. Like I, I've said, um, I like groups of one or two, <laughs> no more than four. Um, you know, I've had experiences in larger groups and, and, you know, maybe it's, it has to be my character flaw. I just don't fit in well with those large dynamics. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So almost like you'd almost have to take the guy out at a different time. Certainly. Right? Like, yeah. like camp is still sacred. Yeah. It's not going to work out, but, but we can do something. Yeah. Day trip it and see how yeah. it goes. Exactly. Yep. All right. Well, I think we haven't really solved his problem. He's going to have to deal with it like a man. Tell the guy he's going to have to take him out later. Um, With that, though, then the first thing right away, and that's 
I know last year we were on and we did kind of a what's the latest progress with RGS and the Great Lakes region. So let's dive right back into that again. You know, what what's an update? What's our status like now? Well, I think it's a tremendously exciting time for RGS uh, here. Uh, not sounding like a broken record. Um, since we spoke last, we have a new employee mm-hmm. uh, here in the state in Larry Partridge. Um, being a, a forest conservation coordinator, um, he's working closely with, uh, our stewardship agreements, um, mm-hmm. on the Huron Manistee. He's also been appointed to the Pigeon River Country, uh, commission or committee there. So it'll be represented as this mm-hmm. for work going on in the Pigeon River Country, which by the way, uh, the Saturday of trout season, uh, the Roger Moore chapter is doing a habitat day on the Pigeon River Country uh, or on the Pigeon River State Park. If anybody's interested, they can contact Kevin Stewart at the Roger Moore chapter or myself at Glenn B at our, the Rough Grouse Society.com uh, email address. He's also working on the Hiawatha. Uh, he's also uh, spending some time with chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this Saturday, this Saturday coming up, uh, the Grand Rapids chapter of RGS and the Muskegon Lakeshore chapter are having a Habitat Day, another tree planting. Uh, that's going to be in uh, actually uh, in northern Nuego County um, on federal forest land, part of the Huron-Manistee, uh, part of the Zone Aspen Project and our stewardship project program there. Again, if people want details for that, uh, you can find it on the RGS website, mm-hmm. our roughgrousesociety.org. So um, we have that going on. We're beginning to, with Nick Bougie, uh, ramp back up events, you know, upcoming events. Talked about our two Habitat Day on the ground Habitat Days. The Grand Rapids chapter just finished their woodcock walk at mm-hmm. Luton Park, and there's still birds singing at Luton Park. So if anybody wants to watch sky dances, I, I see there's a copy of uh, Leopold's The Sand County <laughs> Almanac on your shelf here, Joe, uh, with the great essay yeah. uh, in there entitled Sky Dance. But if you want to see birds, uh, Luton Park, uh, there outside of Rockford, uh, certainly has birds. So there's another chapter event yep. uh, that's there. The Muskegon chapter has their event coming up. The St. Ignace chapter has their event coming up uh, this weekend. If there's any ladies are listening, there's the Her Upland event uh, at the Hillsdale Shooting Facility. Um, so events are wrapping are mm-hmm. ramping up, not to mention all the ones that we've had uh, since the first part of the year. Uh, so it's an exciting time. Yeah. Uh, money's being raised. We're pouring it back in. We've applied for more wildlife habitat grants. Um, yep. uh, and a second Southern woodcock yeah. or, or moving that Southern woodcock <laughs> uh, grant along uh, after we've completed uh, the work on the first one. So yeah. uh, that's a, a real short synopsis. For more details, um, you can look at, again, the Rough Grouse Society webpage, roughgrousesociety.org. Uh, go to our region, uh, the Eastern Great Lakes, and there's detailed uh, information on projects yeah. and things going on. Have uh, have they started cutting yet on the zoned Aspen project? I know it takes a while to get things kind of started there with the paperwork and all the 
the things that get set in place first? Actual cuttings, no. Okay. Uh, Larry is helping move forward with that and, and looking at that. Uh, we do have some, some trees uh, that are going to get marked and okay. uh, going to move forward with that. Right, yeah, because it, it's a, what was it, four years now? And I know it's a long process to finally get things kind of Moving in into the third year, Is yes. Third? Okay, yep, yep. And I had heard he has taken over now doing more of the Southern Woodcock. I needed to get a hold of him and, you know, help him raise funds. That's I'm just kind of still giddy about I'm going to have a, a new Woodcock project happening within 30 miles of me. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I think in, in that's one of those things... <laughs> You know, overall, looking at species of concerns, and, and really, when you look at it, it may not be necessarily here in Michigan, but we need these birds fat and healthy mm-hmm. when they begin their migration or exodus south, and then we need to give them cover habitat in our state on their travels back north. Yep. Um, I, and I think, uh, you know, a prime example of that is, uh, that Luton Park property, uh, where those birds, you were there the other night. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, where there were birds, I mean, I don't, flitting all over the place seems like a, a gross exaggeration, but no, they, yeah, they were, they certainly were flitting all and, over the place. And you were in the other group. If you were in our group, that, that term from Top Gun called buzz the tower, We had a pair of them that alternated buzzing through that tree line at about 10 yards over our heads. And we probably had eight or nine good passes out of it there in 40 minutes, but it was a riot just watching those. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and how big is this Southern Michigan woodcock? The next one here, what was it? It was five sites, was it? Uh, Five areas, five different public state game areas or public lands, uh, you know, kind of South of, I don't think anything's above M57, uh, which is an east-west road yep. across the state, if you're familiar with that. Um, was there one so in Edmore? I believe the okay. Edmore State Game Area. So 46. 46. Yeah, yeah, just a little north of 57. Yeah. But, uh, no, I'm excited for that. I've I've e-scouted some of these areas, and I'm like, okay, we're due. And, and sure enough, here it comes. So, no, this is going to be exciting and you know, we'll just keep marking them on the maps and it, is it just me or has this really been well received? I think, you know, it's been very well received. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look back and again, sometimes I think it, it sound like a broken record player. Um, when I say these things and I don't mean to, but you know, when you look back to my volunteerism with RGS AWS over the years, if you would have said that in the past three years, four years now, coming out of COVID, where we mostly had one person, sometimes two people in the state, that we would have four people in the state, or four people in the lower, plus we just hired someone in the Western UP, and Seth, he's up there working in that. Um, Mm -hmm. We're looking at more capacity that that the organization would have this much here and then extrapolate that out over the Southern apps, the Northern kingdom, the Northeast, Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, this expansion and growth that's coming through Dr. Ben Jones's vision and 
this business model of reinvesting and using large landscape partners like the federal government and state governments to do this work um, is really proving its, its point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're going to see our capacity only grow. Um, and, you know, on my side, working on the donor side, you're seeing donors really buy in and see that, you know, where these dollars can go and, and what they can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things now, to me it was strange the first time I seen it, and that was people from the Audubon Society going into a habitat project for a woodcock walk and realizing that, in a way, there's an awful lot in common with the bird watcher. Well, I think, you know, the world's getting much smaller. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, not to sound like Friedman <laughs> uh, when I say that, but we're realizing that birding groups like the Bird Conservancy or Audubon, which, you know, a lot of people draw the line right there and say, for whatever reason, but that they're now realizing that young forest management, young forest growth, Mm -hmm. timber cutting, some sort of disturbance, because we do not, we no longer allow unless it's a windstorm by and large, but natural disturbances to take mm-hmm. place, that it benefits not only grouse and woodcock, but warblers and neotropical songbirds that they care about as well. <laughs> and yeah. that there's a synergy here, there's an opportunity here um, to enhance everyone's viewpoint. Yep. And if we work together. Now, are we going to agree on everything every step of the time? Uh, we all know that that's not going to case. But in most cases, yeah. you know, we're really coming together in a I don't want to say a bipartisan fashion because that's a bad analogy, but in a in a fashion where we can have discussions. Yeah. Um we can put projects together. We can benefit each other. And at the end of the day, we're creating habitat. We're creating conservation mm-hmm. uh, in young forest management. Yep. Yeah, and I see, I see kind of that across the board, too, when we worry about pollinators and meadow songbirds. That fits right in with the pheasant and the sharptail. You know, the young forest birds, the warblers fit right in with the grouse and the woodcock. And if you look at it even out west, when you're concerned about the sage grouse, there's usually a corresponding species we don't hunt that's right in that same spot. It's it's just hand in hand the whole way. It's just we have to kind of smile at each other and go, well, yeah, I, I kill some and, and you watch them with binoculars. So, yeah, we're all enjoying them, uh, we do. albeit in a slightly different fashion. Yeah, yeah. So, no, that's exciting going forward. That's also, you have a guy named Larry Partridge working for Rough Grouse Society. uh, And he's a great guy. And he is incredibly I have uh, a little beard in me. Yeah, he's got a a good one. He does. He's got a good one. I'm going to have to get him on. Maybe it'll be a Patreon thing talking just about Southern Michigan woodcock and forestry. I, I haven't had a forester. No, I have. I've had, well, Bruce Barlow's not really a forester. I believe he's a, 
He's a biologist. He's a biologist. So I might need a first forester. Yeah. All right. Well, he'd be a good one. He, he would. Anyway, um, other exciting news. You're now on the letter for Sporting Classics. Um, yeah. Um, um, I, uh, if you're folks, as, you're as busy as I am. If the folks at home would see my smile right now, they'd know that, mm-hmm. uh, I'm kind of giddy about this. Um, <laughs> I've, uh, but yes, I was asked to join Sporting Classics Magazine, um, and be on their masthead, uh, as their fly fishing columnist. Um, and, uh, it was quite a surprise and, and quite an honor. Um, I've been fortunate to, to meet Scott Mayer, their editor and in the folks at classics and, uh, face to face and, uh, did join the team. And so, uh, yeah, now I've, uh, have, uh, a few more articles to, to write, uh, each year. Um, but, uh, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, probably, uh, the, the thing I've wanted to do more than anything else in my career. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, the first one's out and people seem to like it. And so hopefully they'll like the second and the third and yeah. they'll like them for the next, uh, couple decades or so. <laughs> Excellent. Well, good. Um, now on to, on to maybe some more somber news. We're both book people. And you're maybe more than me even. And, well, you see my small but quality library. And these are the ones that aren't in boxes hiding behind that door. But uh, either way, two two notable things happened. And, and unfortunately, it's two deaths. Um, Guy de la Valdin and John Goslin are both now deceased. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about them as um, kind of give us a little bit on kind of what they did, but as well, if there was something that you could recommend from them. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Guy anyway, because the guy just, he frustrated me to no end while reading him. And then at the very end, I can appreciate him more because he absolutely frustrated me when I read it. How did he frustrate you? I, I expected him to be more like me, which is not a good way to go into a book by a Frenchman who has clearly a totally different life experience. Um, and then after sitting down and contemplating it more, I realized, well, that's dumb. I don't want him to be like me because, but we had some commonality in there. The whole, for a handful of feathers is him pouring a pile of money into quail habitat to eventually on his property go, yeah, I might shoot a couple, which it took me doing all this work down here in Woodrow bottoms to have wood ducks all over the place some years and then go, well, if I shoot three, I'm good. (laughs) Exact same thing his on a much larger scale but at first i just couldn't get the guy where i thought he should be you know i didn't comprehend really what he was about till about the end of the second book i read and then oh okay this is this is him and there's he's a very complex kind of guy it's not somebody you just sit down read and go okay i understand him anymore it's i find it now better now that i realize he is really different okay i i can i can see that um i met him once Mm -hmm. um i met him at the the old plantation wildlife arts festival in thomasville 
uh, when he was a keynote speaker and I was down there in my old role of selling sporting books. Um, and we had a gracious conversation. Um, I had several of his books there and, um, you know, and, and because I was from Michigan and, uh, mm-hmm. knew Danny Gerber and had met Jim Harrison and, in that, um, we kind of resonated and, and had a really good talk. I, yeah. I personally think that Making Game, his Woodcock book, mm-hmm. is the most lyrical, exquisite, elegant book on Woodcock that's ever been done. Uh, and I know those are bold statements, but Making Game shows... Gee's or Mr. DeValdine's personal passion for the birds, not only on the biological sense, um, but also in the historical sense, the culinary sense, the road tripping sense, um, as he goes through that. And, and the book begins in making game um, on him doing a, a long road trip uh, to watch birds being banded and actually started the trip here in Michigan. Um, he references Sally Downing oh, yeah. or Downer and, uh, people in the Traverse city area. Um, and then he travels across Canada and goes and sees Greg's, um, Spessick at the Moosehorn, uh, research center in Maine and then drops back down on his way to Florida um, and then it comes back into hunting the birds. But I, I think you have to look at all these things within a grain of salt um, in some ways. And now I'm really going off on the, the book end. <laughs> but looking at your books here, I see you've got Rourke's Horn of the Hunter and you have Hemingway's Green Hills of Africa. Yeah. And Rourke, notoriously, as well as Hemingway, um, on their safaris, drank a lot of pink gin under the auspices of avoiding malaria, um, if you will. But that's what their consumption was. And then you start looking at more modern writers, writers that came out of the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and in that class of... Harrison, McGuane, Gee, um, that were in those worlds. And you see that their aptitude or appetite uh, for food and beverage were somewhat different mm-hmm. uh, and maybe other recreational opportunities. But it's no difference than the previous generation. It's just different. Um but I think, you know, Making Game is, again, the most eloquent book out there on Woodcock mm-hmm. that's ever been written. It's a travel book. It's a cul- exploration and uh, Epicurean culinary delights focused around the birds and other game species. Uh, it's a biological synopsis. If you're going to find and read one of the books... I think the second edition, the Clark City Press book um, that was printed by Russell Chatham, who was another part of that uh, cadre of artists, 
his Clark City Press out of Livingston uh, did a second reprint. The first reprint was done in uh, 1985 uh, by Willow Creek, and it's a absolutely gorgeous book. Uh, the print, the paper, the bindings, the frontispiece, it's uh, artistically, it's so, so beautiful. And Russell Chatham did the illustrations for that. But um, the Clark City Press edition, the second printing, which was done in 1990, has a bibliography of Woodcock books mm. that is very, very sound. And that's worth the price of admission. Okay. Um, not to mention Guy's other books, A Handful of Feathers, Fragrance of Grass, Red Stag, which was his sporting novel, uh, which is a, a wonderful read. Um, his angling book as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he was the director-producer of the infamous Tarpon film of McGuane and Harrison and Jimmy Buffett and Richard Brodigan uh, that was filmed in the Keys. Um, that you, it, It's been bantered around now since his death. Um, but the Yeti Company... Um, mm just did kind of a, a, a neat little synopsis of that that's on the Yeti website uh, if you want to look yeah. back at historically of, of that and those early 1970 tarpon days. Hmm. Yep, I don't have the making game, but the, the fragrance of grass I have, and I have for a handful of feathers, which kind of is more about a guy trying to do conservation. And somewhere in, in fragrance of grass, he talks about his childhood being that he grew up in France, he's French. And at that point then, part of, I think, what made it hard to get over or hard, hard to get him to begin with was I thought he had an excessive amount of remorse for how he learned to hunt and shoot as, as in France as a, as a young man. And it, it just seemed like I, I thought that about him. But again, you know, I'm not him, and I had yeah. to figure out that, okay, he's just telling me about him and I have to just read the story. And I found that then once I read some Jim Harrison and realized those two did the same kind of things here and there together, I thought, okay, well, now now I'm getting a better picture of this group of guys, and he made a lot more sense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think all of them are, are fun reads. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, Jim's works, albeit not all sporting or not hardly sporting at all, um, especially his poetry, his poetry in regards to birds, um, in his time that he spent in, you know, Arizona, uh, down on the mm-hmm. Mexican border towards Patagonia, uh, is just, um, they're stellar, his, um, in my mind, but his writings uh, about food. Oh, I have, I have the, the, a really big lunch, mm-hmm. right. And it's just one trip after another to go eat somewhere with something that's over the top, extravagant for the most part. And the writing, the writing took a little bit of getting used to, to realize that I thought he was just wandering off in word. And then all of a sudden the last three paragraphs, it all comes back to the beginning and it all wraps up so neatly in one article. And I thought I had no idea this was going to come back to the beginning. Uh, and it did every last chapter of that book just about it's it was it's it's just fun to read oh yeah because you have no idea where he's going to take you but you're going to end up back at the beginning mm-hmm. but yeah so but uh then what a little bit about john goslin i know he was a guest 
on this podcast before I took over. Um, and I'm probably going to share that one back through the social media again. Yeah. Um, John, um, you know, Guy died. Let me come back to Guy real quick. Because okay. uh, this is kind of a personal story. Um, on April 5th, I was out watching Sky Dancers. Uh, with Mark Altman, uh, a volunteer from the Grand Rapids chapter of RGS. Uh, and we were in Luton Park. We've mentioned that several times. Mm-hmm. But that night we watched it. And uh, I got home that night and told Kathleen about uh, the, what had happened and the birds we saw. And I checked my iPad one last time for emails, um, which typically I don't do in the night. And there was a, a message from Bob DeMott. Um, the noted angler and author, uh, Professor Emeritus from University of Ohio, and uh, saying that, let me know that several of us, that Gee had died. Um, and Bob knew Gee well, knew Her- Jim Harrison well, McGuane well, hunted and fished with all of them. Um, and my response to that was, was I just returned from watching Woodcock Sky Dance and their wide wide spirals upward and them falling like as daintily as mayflies is what I responded uh, to him. Um, and that was a real interesting evening for me because, you know, you, you think what he, and he had died previously. Um, he uh, had asked that folks, uh, not be made public. Um, but the word got out. Um, but I instantly got up and pulled my copy of making game and started, uh, rereading it and stayed up way past my bedtime, uh, which is <laughs> typically pretty early, but John Goslin, um, another gentleman that I knew well or knew personally and knew John well, um, spent much more time with John, uh, then I did Guy, as I mentioned. I only saw him, met him one time in Thomasville. Um, you know, John Goslin and Tom Carney are responsible for giving me the chance to write uh, for Upland Almanac, and for that I'll be ever grateful. Um, John was a, a delightful man, started the publication, um, as the Grouse Point Almanac, uh, and then morphed it into the Upland Almanac, encompassing more birds and bird hunting on a, a larger geographic uh, uh, area. Um, he was just a delight to work with um, through Upland Almanac and uh, Wolf Publications, who is now the parent company of UA. Um, they republished some books. Mm-hmm. Uh, out-of-print wing-shooting books, and uh, he and I spoke a great deal about that. Um, I spoke to him um, probably the last time I got an email from him was a week before his demise, Um, and uh, he battled ALS um, bravely, um, but as with all people that do that succumbed um, here just about a week ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a 
it's one of those things <clears throat> that uh, you know it's it's never easy, um, but uh, he was a wonderful gentleman, uh, and you know I can think back to times at like the Orvis Cup in Sendona when we were together, or. Uh, times at, uh, you know, the Pennsylvania side-by-side shoot or, or other places. Um, and he was just, uh, he was a sporting gentleman. Hmm. And I'll be at a, I'll be at a gentleman's shoot this, uh, coming Saturday. Maybe it might be awful ducky weather to bring out the nice gun though. I'm not sure the gentlemen are going to receive me as favorably if I show up with the with something more uh, weather appropriate, but, uh, with <laughs> they, yeah, well, they probably will accept me anyway, but they're nice guys, yeah. but I, I'm going to feel awkward if I show up with a one barrel gun to a two barrel kind of shoot. But, uh, with that, I, I know we, I wanted to talk some books for sure anyway, and we've already started on that. Well, well on our way to starting on that. Um, Readers come in multiple kinds of, I don't want to say categories, but they're going to be categorized here. Some people read every now and then, or they read barely. Some people read casually, and then some people just seem to always have a book. Um, and that seems to be somewhat common of, of how people read. Um, what are some things that are good reading uh, kind of within those categories? And I'm going to leave it really open for you because... It doesn't all have to be just Upland, but you know, like I have there, there's there's books about tigers and elephants and birds, but there's some fishing and what can get people into that next book? Well, I think first and foremost, um, the genre of American sporting literature, and I'm going to call it the genre of American sporting literature, there is so much opportunity out there for people to explore. You just have to figure out what you want to do. I think the first thing that you have to do is, as you're looking at developing a reading list or getting involved, no matter what level that you're at, you have to pick a topic that you're going to enjoy. So whether it's dog stories or... Lyrical Upland stories, you know, and then you can have the subset <laughs> of grouse and woodcock or quail or, or whatever. Um, technical shooting books. Um, anecdotal short essays. Figure out what you want to read. That's first and foremost. And then once you figure out that category that you're interested in, the next step is to look for an anthology of those stories. And no one in the literary world likes anthologies. No one likes the greatest hunting stories ever told. No one really touts the greatest fly fishing stories ever told. No one ever touts those things. The best of, okay? I see the best of the major from shooting sportsmen I, right here. I wish I had a total complete set of the major, but they only publish yeah. the best of the so, major. Um, so Galen Winter, I really wish, had made a whole book. Look at those. Yeah. And the reason that I 
tout anthologies, and I really believe this, Mm -hmm. is because two things. One, it's like a smorgasbord of food. You can go to some sort of buffet, and there's going to be things that you really like. There's going to be things that are going to be unhealthy that you don't like. There's going to be new taste, old taste. You're going to explore lots of tastes, mm-hmm. but then you're going to dive into the three or four tastes or the five or six tastes in my case, sometimes seven and eight, that you really want to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So by looking at anthologies, you can see a broad-based authors, writings, and styles, and then begin to go down or follow or chase, whatever you want to say, that author. I think in Mm -hmm. the wing shooting world, um, the upland world, the country sport anthologies, come October for Woodcock, bare November days for grouse, um, pheasant tales for pheasant, the call of the quail for quail, um, oh shoot, I'm thinking of their dog when I'm escaping it right now. It's a blue dust jacketed book. Um, their dog story books are very, very strong. <laughs> the interesting point of that is most anthologies are reworked pieces that have been in a publication or a magazine, whatever. The country sports are all original pieces. So the original Gene Hill piece that you read in come October is original, you'll never see it anywhere else. Or Michael McIntosh, or Brian Belinsky, or Steve Smith, or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first thing that I always tell people. The second thing is Steve Bodio. Um, Steve Bodio, if you want to spend time on the web, um, go to Steve Bodio's website. Uh, it's a really interesting website. He was the book reviewer for Gray Sporting Journal back when Ed and Rebecca Gray run Gray's, um, the original edition. He was their book reviewer for years. He did a little book through Stackpole called The Sportsman's Library, The 100 Must Reads. Hmm. Um, It's a neat little paperback book, and it has really dynamic books in there. Some of them are European uh, a lot of American books over a cross genre of natural history, uh, animal biology, uh, bird biology, as well as hunting mm. and fishing. So look at that. Once you have that in line, then you know start aligning, looking at bibliographies, aligning yourself with you know if you like Gene Hill, then read something that Gene Hill and Steve Smith did together. Mm -hmm. Or if you like Michael McIntosh's shotgunning writings, then maybe you should look at Brister. Um, And the path is not always clear. It can be a little serpentine. Um, But you'll start to see, and then all of a sudden you'll find, you know, like Guy Valdine's books. You'll find a, Mm -hmm. a gem in there. Like a Sidney Lay book. Uh, if you like novels, if you like novels, there's not a lot of really strong sporting novels out there. Uh, a Place in Mind by Sidney Lay hmm. is just absolutely um, exquisite. Um, 
it's it's anyway i i digress <laughs> i can ramble on forever y'all getting bored i'm sure well no nah, we're we're still good um what does come across yeah i have traveler's tales from macintosh and if and if you're a guy who loves his gun and and good shooting and experience wise that book's great and it gives you a cross genre you might want a fishing you might want um yeah I there's mean, there's one in there about him going to russia trying to look at guns in the hermitage collection and ending up it, it's a catastrophe of a trip um I don't know how they made it into communist Russia at the time to even go look at those or even think they could. Uh, there's, there's him shooting uh, doves in, uh, in Argentina. He's across the West. There's driven shooting in Europe, you know, it, whatever you wants in there, but his perspective, there's one story in there in particular where he keeps being called Barba Blanca because he has this big white beard and he's, He's getting cocky and he's backing it up on some fairly good shooting. And there's the the pickup. There's a family over there that when the bird boys can't find it, they they pick up the doves for food. And toward the end, he's like he looks over at at his wife who's there and he's like, "I'm going to dump the next one right into that family." And sure enough, boom. And well, by then he started he's calling himself legendary a little bit, and his wife's not having it. And finally, he just points at the beard when he pulls that shot off. He's like. I'm Barba Blanca. That's where that bird was supposed to fall. And that one resonates because every now and then you get on a roll. And so, yeah, that next clay target comes out. You make that shot like you said you were going to. And you just look back at your squad and you're like, yeah, yes, I did. Well, and I think the thing that you look about Michael's writings, and I was fortunate to spend a little bit of time with him, and I'm not trying to name drop, but experience comes here and in, in talking about that mm-hmm. you know i shot with michael a few times uh both here in the states and abroad but he was a shakespearean scholar his background w- was in shakespearean literature and he taught in the academic circles and then he went on to write about birds dogs and guns and he did it in a fashion that was it resonated with people but it all stemmed from his academic background yeah um i think you look at the really good sporting literature people writers that are out there and they all were in some way professional writers or academians or attorneys or people that wrote and also hunted and fished or spent time in the outdoors. And then when they blended the two together, one, they understood the importance of the scene because there is so much more to a, and, and believe me, I struggle with this all the time. <laughs> There's so much more to a sporting story than the dog is unleashed, the dog goes on point, the bird flushes, there's a gun report, something next happens, hit or miss, and the dog <laughs> is brought to hand. Okay. And those things have been written about 
ad nauseum. If if it looks like a battle report, I don't even want to look at it. So yeah. So how do you create a story that <laughs> is one unique, different, memorable? Because what Spiller did with Derrydale Press and Grouse Feathers and more Grouse Feathers, uh, you know, what Foster did in New England Grouse Shooting, what Edmund Davis did in Woodcock Shooting, um, what Rourke did in The Old Man and the Boy and The Old Man and Boy Grows Older, um, what Hill did, or whoever, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm belaboring this point, beating it to death. But, you know, that's where those magical moments in sporting literature come from. Mm-hmm. It's that blend of experience knowing that, one, this isn't worth the story. First of all, this story isn't worth telling. And two, being able to take the components of that special st- story and encapsulate the reader, um, like Valdine does, like, mm-hmm. you know, Harrison does in, in the food books, like Rourke does in The Old Man and the Boy. I mean, if, you, if you're going to start reading good hunting and fishing literature, read The Old Man and the Boy. Um, that is the number one recommended book for anyone, for me. Um, and it has very little to do sometimes, I think, with the hunting. Well. It, it's a hunting book. Uh, no, I but, see, that's where, it's like saying the river runs through it is a, is a fly fishing book. I would respectfully disagree. Completely. River runs through it is not a fly fishing book at all. A river runs through it is a story of a dysfunctional family where the father and the two sons all want to emulate one another. They all want to be the character of somebody else. If you look at the movie, Tom Skerrick's the father, Brad Pitt's the young rebellious son, and uh, I'm spacing the actor who... Isn't Anthony Walter. Hopkins, isn't he? Is one of them? No, that's, no, that's a different Anthony one. Anthony Hopkins is in the in Harrison's uh, novella. Um, oh, but, I mixed it up, okay. But they all want to be somebody else. You know, the Protestant pastor, Tom Skerrick, the father, he wants to be a little more rebellious like Brad Pitt's character and a little more intellectual like Walter, the son who's going to go to the University of Chicago. And the two brothers want to be more like their dad, but also a little bit more like their each other. The only and it's, they're always in conflict. The only place that they find harmony is when they're on the water together. And when you look at the old man and the boy, you know, Rourke grew up in a, a tough family situation, um, was raised by his grandfather, the old man, the captain. Mm-hmm. But it's those life lessons that the old man subtly taught him you know, like the chapter, it always rains on Saturday. I mean, I can remember as a kid, as a little kid, taking that out of my grade, the old man and the boy out of the grade school library. I now own the book 
because I went back and I gave them way too much money for the book. It was a library edition, but I was the last person that had checked the book out like in 1978 or 79, and I bought it in the 90s. But anyway, um, and actually, uh, I ended up buying them three books of poetry and donating three books of poetry to the library for that uh thing but it's got the old card thing in the back yeah. and the little hand <clears throat> stamp when i mm -hmm. had to bring it back and my name scrawled on it but anyway neither here nor there i uh, reminisce but you know <laughs> you look at that and i can remember on a saturday when i thought i was going to go fish or shoot or do something and it's pouring rain reading that chapter it always rains on saturday um you know it's it's you just it's so true though it's it, it's so true. We wait for those days. Okay, Saturday's our day. And the only day that it's the wrong weather is Saturday. You know, whether it's goose hunting a certain field, I need an east wind or this doesn't work. I need an east wind. I'll get three east winds before Friday and I'll get a straight west at 20 on Saturday and I can't hunt the spot. It happens so often that it's just one of those things. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how it's going to go. But there's... And, and going to the point where some of those books really are kind of, this is what happened, this is what we did, here's the end result. Um, I'll throw James Patterson under the bus. Maneaters of Savo is nowhere near as thrilling as the movie. And I couldn't get through parts of it very easily because I don't really, it's, it's not that same thing, right? It, it's, well, he's a British colonel. He's not supposed to be poetic. He's, he's British colonel, he's in Africa, he's an engineer. All those things go against him, and it's still a good read because you're getting a guy's first-hand account of two of the most notorious man-eaters in, in human writing history. And it's just, there's not quite the same as if I was to pick up Corbett, who is also just a colonel, he's just in a different part of a different continent. And when he talks about leaving his little machan in the dark with the lantern and walking back to the village where hopefully he'll be safe. And he tells you he has an eerie feeling. You're feeling an eerie feeling in the middle of that jungle in India. And then he tells you, yeah, and then, yeah, the cat walked my tracks out, made sure I got back safely. Like, Ooh. Well, uh, you know, I, I think from there's, there's a difference in the writer. Well, for there, sure, there yeah. certainly is. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a difference in the story. What's, what story... I mean, now I'm way going off the deep end here, Joe. <laughs> um, what story did Corbett want to tell? He wanted to tell, in The Maneaters of Qumran, he wanted to tell his story of being the hunter that saved the Indians, people from India, mm -hmm. uh, from a man-eater, okay? So that's the synopsis of the story, and he was the great white hunter because that's what he was set to do. Um, and his story and his background, being Oxford-educated, um, is, is really interesting. The thing I get but when though, you look yeah. at Patterson, he never went there to be a hunter. No, <laughs> he, <didn't>. he, he <laughs> never went there to be a hunter. 
He went there as an engineer to build a bridge and to build a train and to build the economy through East Africa and was all of a sudden stymied or handcuffed or hamstringed or attacked, whatever term you want to use, (laughs) um, because they all work, by a pride of man-eating lions that still exist today. Yeah, and only two lions at that point. At that time. Yeah. So I I think both books have strong merit. They're just written from two different social, ideological perspectives. Yeah, Corbett really... Corbett gives you that creepy feeling. Oh. Oh, and it's and it's right there. I mean, as it's getting dark and he's sitting there over a, a goat tied to a stake hoping this man-eater shows up, and he says, well, you know, and my little machan, which is kind of like a tree stand, is only eight feet off the ground. And you're like, this tiger's eight feet long, man. Well, and you get that feeling right away. Well, you when you look at his writing. He, he always fascinated me as a kid. That was one of the first books I read. Oh. Uh, and he talks about, uh, and it's, they're very gory. Um, they're, they're, they are, uh, he didn't you know, save as many Indians as you might think, because it, he, the one lioness takes what, 200 and some people before he can get her in a gun sight. Well, there's, know, it's terror. But he talks and describes, um, for the listeners there. And again, this it's, it's a rather graphic, gory book, um, Mm-hmm. And by woke modern standards, it's certainly not politically correct. Um, but nor is Rourke and a lot of people from that time frame. Um, hell, Hemingway's books aren't uh, that way. But he talks about tigers jumping through an open window of a thatched hut and picking up a native or a person and jumping out and then the family not hearing a thing because the stealthiness or the quietness of the tigers to only hear the primordial death's thralls screams of the person as Mm -hmm. it's being mauled. Um, it does certainly send up chills. Yeah. Um, and as a little kid, you know, back when I was, It'll, I've read Corbett several times. It'll since, make but, you scared of the dark. But as a little kid, you know, I was like, you know, I wanted to make sure our double-paned windows in our little ranch house were closed because yeah. you never know what would, might jump through. Um, yep. But at the same time, it was an exhilarating read. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and uh, I will give Patterson one bit of credit, and that is when you when you read his book what comes through first and foremost as he's hunting them or trying to hunt them is the absolute amount of frustration he has that does come through in his writing and you can empathize really well because it seems like they've got him beat they're two steps ahead of him every time he shows up to stand somewhere in a tree with a rifle they hit the other end of the camp it's like they knew where he was well even if they didn't they were lucky as can be but the frustration is it sits there with you like, I know they're going to be successful again. But again, look back to, see, I yeah. I look back to what was he? He was a, 
a scholarly British engineer, yeah. and his plans were thought out and were always to be the perfect plans. Um, and he, you couldn't plan against yeah. these critters. He, he ends up getting, it's not really lucky, but his worst plans are the ones that succeeded because you're like, oh, he's dead. And he gets the shot off and one runs off and he does it again later on. You're like, this was the dumbest plan you'd come up with. And it's the only ones that worked. And, but yeah, that, that frustration does come through. So I got to give him a little credit there, but, uh, there's, I gave it away, but I probably shouldn't have. And that is Joel Vance had one, Bob's, uh, Bob's brush and Brittany's. Mm -hmm. And there was some, there was some good writing in there that, you could walk with him with the writing and the way the way he remembered the family farm in Missouri you could go on that quail hunt and you were standing next to him and especially by the time he'd gotten a couple chapters into talking about that same spot a little bit in that same region uh, you really were walking along with him um he's one of the more new ones well, it I, seemed yeah, like he, I mean since the 80s he certainly <clears throat> late 80s, early 90s. He's certainly been more prolific. Mm -hmm. I, I think, yeah, he's an example of where imagery um, really comes into play um, and allows you to get that, that look, that vista, that um, vantage point of the landscape uh, as if you are alongside of him or in his hip pocket. Yep. Um, you know, I think, and that's where, again, uh, I think imagery only goes so much or goes so far, but having the good story to tell, having those good basis or bones or foundations, knowing right from wrong um, of what you want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm still learning, but you know, Hill did that well. Um, and, and Hill probably did that, that short imagery style prose better than yep. anybody else. And I think that goes along too with, with Joel's writing in that book, he wasn't talking really about hunting. He gives you this 1980s, nineties, rural Missouri look at the Bob White and the farming community. And along the way, you're going on hunting trips and doing hunting things, but he he gives you this this much bigger vista, really. And like we say, the the scene really is mattering there because by the time you're done reading those books, you know about his aunt, and you know about his dad, and you know about the family, and you know about the family farm, and all this time you've been hunting. Well, and it it makes for great reading. Well, it goes back to there's yeah. only so many ways to say. The dog, the hounds got unleashed and whatever. Yeah. Um, it's understanding that story and developing that story and intermingling or interwining them together. Mm -hmm. Look over at the library. There's, there are books everywhere in there that have something to offer. Um, again, the compilations, there's one in here from, what was it, Lamar Underwood did one? Classic Hunting Stories is one where you'll get, it's over the span of a century probably. By the time 
you know, you'll get Nash Buckingham in there and you'll get one right not that far from it with, uh, with Gene Hill and you'll get something in there. I have one somewhere with Grover Cleveland hunting quail Oh yeah, and the ethics of quail hunting. And you can, yeah, again, we'll, we'll hit that compilation thing one more time. If it says greatest hunting stories, you're getting, you're cherry picking the best of anything. And if it's, you know, you might have one from Archibald Rutledge on turkeys or on a driven deer hunt, you know, and it may not be your cup of tea, but the guy can, the guy puts a nice scene together too well, yeah, about the, that. The stories are sound. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like in, uh, I think it's the Chicago Tribune did a book called the best fishing stories ever told or something like that. And, you know, it's hard to believe, um, People laugh at me all the time when I say this, <laughs> but there's a story in there called Old Croc, C-R-O-C, by Jason Lucas. Jason Lucas was a fishing writer, just a good old-fashioned traditional fishing writer for years, um, wrote for Sports of Field. But it's the story of two young boys going pike fishing. And they catch this little hammer handle. Now this, I'm going to tell you the story and then I'll tell you why it's important. Um, and the one young bloodthirsty kid wants to pull out the billy club and whack the fish in the head and kill it. And the other kid says that, uh, his father says that if you kill all the small fish, there won't be any big fish left. So they let this fish go. And then the fo- the story kind of follows this fish as it grows up. And this fish actually is a female and grows to a very large size. And then it comes back years later when both of these young men are graduated. One's a doctor and I think the other's an attorney or both professionals. And they're fishing and they hook this massive northern pike that ends up breaking their bamboo rod and gets away, ruins their tackle. And the, the kind of encapsulation is, is I wonder if that's that fish we released when you wanted to kill when you were a little kid. Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, if you would have thought that catch and release based story would have been written in maybe the late seventies, early eighties or something, but it was written like in 1946, right after the war. Think about that. And it's, it's a one, and I like big toothy critters. I got to tell y'all, I like big Northern Pike. I like big toothy critters a lot. If you'd see me right now, you'd see a big grin on <laughs> my face. Joe will attest to it. Yep. I yeah. like big toothy critters. I've liked them since I was a little kid. I mean, I've been bit by them and bit on, I mean, I just like those critters. Um, and, but that's a great story from 1946. I believe, I'm almost certain it is. I'm going off my memory here, which is a little slighted as best. But um, Old Croc is a great angling story, hmm. but it's got a catch and release theme and it's well written. But, you know, these things, you know, nothing really new um but it's all how it is presented Mm -hmm. and in what fashion yeah yeah 
there are some there are some good ones and I guess I'm not gonna we yeah we really could put a 10 hour podcast together just staring oh. at one bookshelf here and it's it's Africa there's some of the you know Asia and and uh and the Indian continent there's a lot of North America and there the one thing I don't have much on is white tails cuz I I just am not that guy well but 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 again yeah. you have to look at why certain things have more writings than other um it's all based upon social economic values mhm um but then when Rutledge puts together a whitetail story, I'm all in. Well, you know? but there's not a lot of very good, I mean, no. big-time lyrical whitetail stories out there. <laughs> um, and again, that Rutledge wrote, you know, out of the South. Um, and his involved was, dogs and shotguns, so yeah. it's still a... <laughs> It's still a small game hunt for a deer. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, there's, I, I like it too, the, the look into the past, right? And I don't have, I have a compilation in there with one Turgenev story out of Russia. And it's on my, I need to win the lottery so that I can go buy books because Turgenev is on my list of things I want to buy. There's, he's not something that maybe the American reader educated more recently is going to appreciate right away mainly we don't have that vocabulary anymore well but talk about paint a picture it's a polaroid when he writes it for you and then you got to hang on and get through it because it's a thousand words to to get there sometimes but well i think it's yeah and it goes back to that's In order to appreciate literature, you have to read. Mm-hmm. It's not just one book, mm-hmm. but it's a lot of books. Um, I remember back when, I think it was Jim Harrison, Richard Ford, and Tom McGuane spoke at Meyer Public Gardens. Um, they did a, a series of talks. They spoke two nights in a row. I, I went both nights. They spoke one night in Lansing at MSU because they were all MSU, Michigan State University grads. Mm -hmm. And then they spoke at the Meyer Gardens. And um, Mr. Harrison, Jim, went on this kind of thing about the biggest issues with American readers or, or writers were that they never read the great Russian classics. They never read f- books from France or Spain or the Argentinian poets, or they never read any other perspective outside of our lives. Hmm. Um, and that resonated with me in, in a very shallow fashion, not because I've read, uh, I've certainly read more um, international works since then. Um, but as a kid going to the university, um, you know, I was just a farm kid growing up. My father was a conservation officer. I mean, I was just a plain old kid, um, and was fortunate enough to go to the Ohio State University, which had a wonderful library, had a wonderful library. And I believe it or not, those that know me will say you're bullshitting here. Excuse me. Am I allowed to say that on your podcast? Yeah. I yeah. apologize. Uh, um, we've had a lot worse, but, uh, 
I apologize. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time in the library. And one of the, one of the reasons that I went to the library, and still today, is that I could read, now maybe two or three days late, but I could read the <clears> newspaper <throat> from Center County where our place was in Pennsylvania. I could read the newspaper from Clark County where I grew up. I could read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post and the L.A. paper or the Bozeman Chronicle. I could read newspapers from all over the United States. And as you would read, and albeit some of them were two or three days old, maybe five days old, it didn't matter. But all of a sudden you started to see that there was an event and I'm way off on the deep end here, Joe. I apologize. Um, <laughs> We're, we do rabbit. We do rabbit trails. Yeah. I was in the, you know, University Commons, the student union, when the space shuttle crashed. Uh, and the astronauts lost their life. Very solemn moment. And you, one would think that something of that depth and solemnness, all the stories from across the country would be singing from the same hymnal, yet they weren't. And after that, you st I started looking and seeing that whether it was an economic issue or a political issue or what a social pop issue, whatever issue that you want to say. People from the East Coast and the West Coast, right, wrong, or indifferent, looked at that same issue differently than people in the flyover states. And... Other issues, the people in the flyover states looked at it much differently than other things. But the only way you're going to learn that was by taking the time and having an open enough mind. Not saying that my mind is way, way open. I think y'all, a lot of you all know that. Mm -hmm. But to, to sit there and read X, Y, and Z or A, B, C, and D. And then formulating your own opinion and your own thought processes that would guide your morals <laughs> or guide your behavior or guide your beliefs um, along those lines. Yeah. And the same holds true with sporting books. If you only read, if you only read Grouse and Woodcock books, you may miss something. If you only read big game African safaris things, you're going to miss the quaintness of a Burton Spiller talking about stone fences in the Northern Kingdom. Um, so you've got to be a, a little more encompassing, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. If you will. Yeah. There's, and not to jump right into, if you're new to reading and you don't do it a lot, by all means, don't jump right into Turgenev. But you can jump right into The Old Man and the Boy. You can jump right into, uh, there's Patrick McManus in there. 
there's no reason why you can't start there too, because it is going to take some exercise to maybe get to some of that other stuff. Um, and those guys will start you right out. You know, you'll get into something you may like. Uh, there's uh, the Gene Hill. Well, write some very short things where you don't you don't have a lot of time. Maybe. Well, okay. Well, ten minutes will get you through a Gene Hill chapter. It, and the great thing about a Gene yeah. Hill book, whether it's a Hunter's Fireside book or tail feathers mm-hmm. whichever one you want to pick is that um you know outside of a, a couple gene hill titles shot, excuse me shotgunner's notebook and uh his dog book um the content of those because they came out of the essays that were in sports field and field and stream mm-hmm. um there's diversity. Yeah. There's yeah. angling, traditional angling or conventional angling. Um, there's fly fishing. There's bird shooting. There's target <laughs> shooting. There's big game hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> there's humor, but there's somberness. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there's... You know, I, I can go on and on and on as y'all are hearing tonight. But yep. uh, Gene Hill wrote uh, a story called Martin about a, a goose guide on the eastern shore who loses his lip for calling. and But Gene Hill gets to go with him. And they have a, a rather poor day with the major flocks. But they managed to call in one kind of ghost goose or widow goose, if you will. And it's a really, it, it, just a, a really soulful tribute. And then he turns around and he talks about how to chew tobacco. Um, or, you know, <laughs> yep. the, the, the letter, letters to the board where he kind of justifies to his wife uh, his sporting expenditures for the year, or the annual the annual <laughs> the report. annual report the annual report that's what it's called. Um, so, you know, that's another good place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah. There's there's no shortage of good stuff to start on, and uh, before. Before, yeah, we, we pick apart my library and go book by book through the whole thing, doing book reports at ten minutes apiece. Let's uh, we'll get on to my last and famous final question, and that is the one: If you could use one particular gun for a day, from history, what would it be, and where would you take it? You know, if I could use one particular gun from history. What would I do and what would I do? You know what I'd do? Um, I'd want the peregriners that John Wayne asked Maureen O'Hara to bring in Big Jake. Yes. I'm telling you, I would say, did you bring my greeters? Because um, Marino hair with that red Irish hair is just uh, anyway. I don't mean to sound weird here. Um, 
but uh, my wife's Irish Catholic. She's name's Kathleen. But no, I would I would say John Wayne's Greeners. Um, and what would I want to do with them? And those are hammer guns, by those the way. Those are hammer too. guns, by the way. Yeah. Um, what would I? Now I'm gonna go off on a. Uh, I'm gonna go off on a. Uh, a real, real tribute here. Um, what would I want to do with them? I would say. Um, well, I shouldn't say this. This is really bad. Um, what I'd, I, what I'd want to do with them is I'd go back to the Isle of Anglesey, um, and shoot driven woodcock. Shooting driven woodcock is, Ooh. um, is absolutely, um, it's probably the, I hate to say it's the pinnacle of my sporting life because my dogs weren't involved and I've got high notes with each and every single dog I've ever had and I've been kennel blind forever and always will be. Um, but, um, yeah, I, that would be fun. That that would be having those. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that. And yeah, I'll, and I'll tell you the other thing. Um, the other thing, since we can't shoot doves in Michigan, would be to have um, those guns on a on a hot dove stand uh, on Labor Day weekend someplace Ooh. in the South with a kind of a a metal jug. Uh, an old-fashioned metal jug of sweet tea, and you can see that metal jug kind of sweating, and uh, maybe a hibachi just to the side. So if you breast out two or three doves and eat them as poppers in the field, Ooh. you might be able. You won't be over your limit when you walk out. Um, Boy, yeah, either a hot dove field or or or. The Isle of Anglesey. Um, that would be sweet. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, has, has, now, has anybody said those guns before? Oh, no. No. You no. you completely surprised <laughs> me. And, I'm, and I've thought of a lot of possibilities. I mean, there are, there are so many guns with provenance out there. Um, yeah. But not, I did not actually expect that at all. But then when you start to think about it, you're like, those are pretty iconic. Well, you know, it's, absolutely. It's just one of those really cool, subtle lines in in that movie. And um, yeah, where he says, know. "I don't see so good anymore," and I've switched to the shotgun. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, um, Martha, yeah. did you bring my pair of greeners? Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, that would and driven, and that'd be European woodcock too. So yeah. they're almost the size of a grouse. A little smaller than the size yeah. of a grouse. Yeah. Um, they're just, they're wonderful birds. Um, they're wonderful, wonderful birds. Um, and I've been fortunate to, to shoot a few. So, uh, hmm. uh, that's on my lottery list. Uh, it would take the lottery, but that's, mm -hmm. Ooh, 
I did think too, while you were saying that, I was like, man, I could take those guns to one of those driven simulators and just see how many rounds I could get through them. But that would be mostly just because I just want to hear the guns go off over and over and over again. But, you know, it's, um, there's something as you get older and your life changes and, you know, um, Some of you out there may know. If not, uh, I guess I'm going to go off a deep end here at the end. Um, I recently had a major heart attack, and it was a pretty good one. Um, not that any of them are good, but I'm, it was it was kind of serious. Um, and so you begin to reevaluate, and it was all a hundred percent self-inflicted. Um, every bowl of biscuits and gravy that I've eaten and my life or peppered bacon uh, attributed this thing oh. I take full responsibility um, but you you begin to reevaluate um, you know and and everybody says that and and hell I said sure right I'm invincible that's what uh, I had for breakfast today it, yeah I mean it bre- I gotta tell you this whole cardiac oh. rehab and everything it's the hardest part of the day is getting through breakfast. If I can get through breakfast, it's a piece of cake. Um, but, you know, it was like somebody say, well, you know, you kind of need to slow down, and, yep, I'd put in another dip of skull and keep on going, but uh, not now. But you begin to reevaluate, and you begin to reevaluate lots of things, um, whether it's books or artwork or days of field or whatever. Um, and I don't want to be come too nostalgic but when you talk about shooting and shooting and shooting and pulling the trigger you know used to be that you know <laughs> uh let's go shoot 200 targets okay that's great well let's go shoot another 25 and you know maybe it's that old bull young bull theory but now but you know maybe i just want the 50 right shots whether it's on the clay's course or whether it's in the field, you know, mm-hmm. do I want to cast my arm off or do I want to make the right 25, 30 casts in a night and be done with it? Um, you know, do I want that long, long, long retrieve or is a medium range snappy retrieve just as positive. (laughs) Um, you know, I can tell you, uh, and I'll be the first to admit there were times where, you know, uh, if we were training, it was like, drop that bird over the next rise because I want my dog to make the longest retrieve possible. And now, Maybe I just want that out and back and he jumped. I mean, and hell, he doesn't even have to, I mean, he needs to be steady before I send him, but coming back, he doesn't even need to sit anymore. He just needs to jump up in my arms and hand me the bumper. (laughs) And, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, yeah. uh, Perspectives change. Yep. I still got a little bit of that burn the powder in me every now and then, and that's where the clays come in. 
if I get the right couple of sequences, I'm good with a couple of birds. But every now and then I want that that itch is there still. And that's where, you know, okay. I can I can still now I'm going to learn a painful lesson because by the time I put 200 rounds through those greeners, I'm going to be suffering. <laughs> and Oh, you know. You know, a nice English gun with a nice game load or a nice target load and it is going to is going to hurt me. But at the same time, yeah. I I see that coming. But you know, yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, and I mean this really sincerely. Um, they all do the same thing. <laughs> they all do the same thing. Yep. Whether it's a fancy fly rod or an expensive fly rod. Whether it's a... And I don't want to sound crass here, but whether it's an inexpensive shotgun or a hundred thousand dollar shotgun, and believe me, I'm not being boastful here, but I've shot them all. I've shot some pretty nice guns over the years. You know, mm-hmm. the most expensive guns that I've ever shot in my life didn't break in targets any harder than that eleven hundred that I shot when I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the immortal words of Blanchard Holt one time, he was this old guy in Pennsylvania. He was a little older than my grandfather. and uh, His father and my great-grandfather were in the lumber business together out there, or con- contemporaries, competitors, friendly competitors. And a lot of times, Mr. Holt would nursemaid me as my dad and my grandfather went fishing because he was just old enough that he couldn't wouldn't go and, he, but he'd still dick around with me, excuse me, screw around with me as a little kid. And uh, one time I told Mr. Holt that I'd read like modern designs for American rifles or something, and that he needed a, in Carmichael, and he needed a new uh, new deer rifle. He needed like a 270 Winchester. <laughs> and he said, why is that? I said, well, it shoots faster and flatter and more foot-pounds of energy and he said, and we were in his house, and his house was in Unionville, Pennsylvania, this great old three-story house. And uh, he said, Glenn Robert, there's two deer that I killed up there at the deer camp. What'd I kill them with? He said, 32 Winchester, sir. He said, that bear that's between them that I killed up on the Rock Run, what are uh, your 32 Winchester, sir? He said, out in the other room, uh, those caribou and those moose, when Dad and I went to Quebec, you're, you're 32 Winchester, sir. And that time that we went to out west and that mule deer and the elk and the antelope, uh, I, you're 32 Winchester, sir. And he said, then why in the heck do I need a new deer rifle, Glenn? <laughs> Robert, you shoot them in the heart, they fall over dead. Okay, pragmatic as I'll get out. Now, I wasn't the smartest kid in the world, but I got to tell you about halfway through that conversation, I began to realize how stupid I was um, telling this old guy who spent more time in the woods than I ever would. Um, that, that, so it's, it's not about all those things that we dream about or search about or say lottery, this or lottery, that, um, it's about making the most of your opportunities when you're out there in the field and most of your dogs and your time and your friendships. And, uh, goes back to that thing. And the first thing we did, you know, 
uh, you got to be true to yourself and safe and be ethical and enjoy yourself. And at the end of the day, that's all you can ask for. Mm-hmm. Well, I think on that note, we're going to call it an evening. That's, I'm not going to get any better than that. But it's good to have you on, Glenn. Thank you for the invitation. Yep. I'd like to thank you again for listening. It's been a pleasure to talk with all these interesting people and to bring those conversations to you. If you would, please take the time to like and share or rate and review this podcast. It will help get the word out to others who may also enjoy uh, conversations kind of like these. You can find us on Facebook under Bird Camp. Follow there as well as on Instagram, now at Bird Camp Pod, one word. If you want to support the podcast financially, we do that through Patreon just for a couple of bucks. I figure the cup of cup of coffee or the price of a beer a month is pretty cheap. I'm good for it. And uh, you take those funds and use those for either an expense here at the podcast or if there's any excess, it goes into something fundraising for conservation or kids in the outdoors or some such things as that. And uh, hopefully... I will hear from you. I always appreciate feedback, as well as I look forward to you listening to the next one here on the Bird Camp Podcast.